0: Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Imagine, if you would, with me driving home on a hot summer day when All of a sudden, the traffic lights go out in rush-hour traffic. Realizing that you'll be getting home later than usual, you try to call home with your cell phone to let your family know that you'll be late for dinner, except there's no cell service. Desperate to cure your boredom as you sit in rush-hour traffic, you turn on the radio in your car, only then to discover there's no radio stations broadcasting. Sounds like something out of a sci-fi movie, doesn't it? Well, this actually happened on August 14th, 2003. At approximately 4 p.m. Eastern Time, a high-voltage power line in northeastern Ohio came into contact with some overgrown trees, and the power line shut down. Over the next 90 minutes, three more power lines sagged into trees due to the summer heat and the extra current they were carrying causing them to fault as well when other power lines on the grid were unable to shoulder the extra burden of voltage that was created by the first four faulting a cascade of failures caused the largest blackout in North American history Toronto Ottawa, New York, Detroit, Cleveland, and nearly every city in between were suddenly without power. The outage stranded people in trains, subways, elevators, and on roller coasters at amusement parks. It shut down air conditioners, cellular phone services, surgeries in hospitals, and electric water pumps in some communities. Having been only two years since the 9-11 terrorist attacks, many Americans feared that our nation was under attack again. And overall, 50 million people, 50 million people on that August afternoon in 2003 lost electrical power. All in southeastern Canada and eight northeastern states and they lost power for up to two days. The incidents believed to have caused 11 deaths and cost an estimated $6 billion. There's an even, an even bigger power outage that's been going on even longer that you may not be aware of. Every Sunday, thousands of churches in America are doing ministry under their own power instead of plugging into the power of the Holy Spirit. And every Monday through Saturday, millions of professing Christians are trying to live the Christian life in their own strength, instead of getting their strength from the Lord. We're continuing our series in the book of Ephesians today, called Chosen. I'd like to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Ephesians chapter 5. And to pull out the sermon notes that were on the welcome table when you came in this morning. If you forgot to grab a copy of the sermon notes, feel free to get up and you can go right now and pick up a copy. They're next to the offering box and the hand sanitizer. And if you need to borrow one of our Bibles, we have plenty on the information table. Feel free to get up and grab one of those as well so that you can follow along with us. And as you turn there, uh, let me just review and give you some context of the passage that we'll be looking at this morning. Uh, throughout this series, we've been learning that in chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians, it contains mostly theological content that emphasizes the position the believer enjoys in Christ, whereas chapters 4 through 6 contain mostly practical content On how, and it emphasizes how we should live in light of our position. This is why throughout the last half of chapter 4 and the first third of chapter 5, the Apostle Paul has made the following his clarion call. Christ followers must walk in holiness. It is not optional. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 to 21, that we'll be looking at today, answers the question, how are we supposed to live holy lives for the Lord without being overwhelmed by how difficult it can be? The simple answer to that question is by plugging into the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, the first point of this message today will have some important background information on the Holy Spirit. And then the second point will be from our text, Ephesians 5, verses 18 to 21. And so having said that, the first point is what I'm calling a presupposition. Uh, A presupposition is an assumption made that's not voiced. And there are some presuppositions that Paul has in mind when he's writing Ephesians 5, 18 to 21. The presupposition excuse me, that he has are found elsewhere in the New Testament, sprinkled in various places in what's called pneumatology. It's a word theologians use to describe all the verses in the scriptures on the Holy Spirit put into one bucket, and we look at them together and, and look and see what do they say about the Holy Spirit, pneuma being the Greek word for spirit. Now we need to know these assumptions that Paul has in his mind so that we can understand what he's writing here in verses 18 to 21. And So for the sake of time, I I won't have you turn to any specific text uh, for this first point because it's drawn from several Bible verses. Instead, I've listed the scripture references on your handout by each point so you can look them up later. And I would definitely encourage you to do so. So here's the first point on your outline. and the main presupposition that Paul has in his mind that he knows, the Ephesians know, and we need to know this. And it is simply, the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Now, for some of you, that might be like, a well, duh. But for others, uh, you may not have realized that, you may not have heard that before, or may not know that. And so I want to just do a quick crash course in pneumatology for the next few minutes to kind of bring you up to speed before we dive into verses 18 to 21. Now, our church, along with all other orthodox evangelical churches, embrace what's called the doctrine of the Trinity, and that doctrine is revealed in the Scriptures. The doctrine of the Trinity can be summed up in one sentence, and I believe I have this on your outline. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each person is fully God, and there is one God. Now, I could devote an entire sermon series to the Trinity because I took a semester-long class in seminary called Trinitarianism. Try saying that three times in a row. And there also have been many, many, many books written on the Trinity. Uh, by scholars and theologians. But unfortunately, I don't have time to unpack this further. So let me just say, although every believer should try to grasp the doctrine of the Trinity, we also need to realize that our understanding of it will always be limited on this side of eternity. And it's because it's a difficult doctrine for finite minds to understand. Well, how can God be three in one? Despite this, believing in the Trinity is a requirement for all Christ followers. Or, as 20th century theologian Wilbur Smith once said, if you try to understand the Trinity, you'll lose your mind. But if you deny the Trinity, you'll lose your soul. Now, letters A, B, and C on your outline are a brief summary of what the Holy Spirit does for the Lord's church. And it's a brief summary that proves he is God. He does the things that God does. And so here's letter A on your outline. He helps us learn the will of God. The Holy Spirit helps us learn the will of God. When Jesus introduces the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16... He told the disciples the Spirit would convict the world regarding sin and help believers understand the truth of Scripture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul tells us that the Spirit understands the mind of God and the thoughts of God and reveals them to believers. Another proof that the Holy Spirit is God can be found in Ephesians 4.30, which we studied a few weeks ago. And it's there in Ephesians 4.30 where we're told the Spirit has emotions, just like God does, in that He can be grieved. He's grieved when we sin, when we disobey God. It burdens Him. Next, letter B, the Holy Spirit does the work of God. He does the work of God. In the Psalms, we're told that when the Spirit works, He demonstrates omnipotence. That's the word scholars use for being all-powerful. That's a character quality of God. We're also told in the the Psalms, in Psalm 139, uh, verse 7, that the Spirit is omnipresent, meaning He's everywhere. David says in Psalm 139, verse 7, Where can I go and flee from your Spirit? It's a rhetorical question, meaning nowhere. I can't hide from you, God. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13, the prophet tells us the Spirit is omniscient, meaning He's all-knowing. He knows all things, just as God does. And in the New Testament, the Spirit did the work of God when he caused the virgin birth. We see that in the Christmas story in Luke chapter 1, verse 35. And 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 is where Peter tells us the Spirit literally carried the authors of Scripture as they wrote down what God wanted said. And so this is why, by the way, the Spirit of God will never, ever lead anybody to do something contradictory to the Word of God because the Spirit of God wrote the Word of God. So anybody who tries to tell you, you know, the Lord's just leading me to do X, and it's something that God's Word explicitly forbids, you, t- you can just know for sure, you're not hearing from the Lord. You're either listening to your flesh or a demon. Now, here's letter C, the third reason that the Spirit is God. He indwells the people of God. He indwells the people of God. When an unbeliever repents of their sin and trusts in Christ alone for their salvation, one of the many instantaneous events or things that takes place is called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit places all believers, according to the New Testament, into the universal body of Christ. It unites us with Christ, and it seals our redemption. This is talked about in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 to 13, uh, being uh, brought into uh, the uh, universal body of Christ. And then uh, Paul, in Ephesians 1, 13 to 14, talks about the Spirit sealing or being a down payment, a deposit for our redemption. In Romans 8, 9, Paul says, whoever does not have the Spirit does not belong to Christ. So, the, the lit, one litmus test in the Scriptures for whether somebody is saved or not is whether or not they have the Holy Spirit in them. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, Paul says that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It is what allows the Lord to dwell within us. It is what, for example, allows the Lord to meet with me in my devotional time tomorrow morning and the Lord to meet with you at your house during your devotional time. It's the Spirit being in me and being in you. Now, two quick points need to be made before we move on from here, and that is, first of all, nowhere in the Scriptures are believers commanded to seek the baptism or anointing of the Holy Spirit. Nowhere. Can't be found. And this is because all true believers receive all of the Holy Spirit they need on the day of their conversion. Next, secondly, second important point I want to make here is that indwelling, the indwelling of the Spirit is not, it's not the same thing as the filling of the Spirit. A believer can be indwelled by the Holy Spirit, but not filled. More on this later, but for now, what you need to know is this. And you might want to write this down. Hint. The issue is not how much Holy Spirit you have, but rather how much of you the Holy Spirit has. The issue is not how much of the Holy Spirit you have, but rather how much the Holy Spirit has of you. That might be a better way of saying it. Now, having said these things and giving you a little background there of some pneumatology and who the Holy Spirit is, let's look at Ephesians 5, verses 18 to 21 together. Paul says... Now, here's our big idea for today, the sermon in a sentence. If you remember anything, I hope you remember this, and it is, if you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, you'll have to empty yourself first. If you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, you'll have to empty yourself first. Now, a proper understanding of Ephesians 5, 18 to 21 and the Spirit-filled life is extremely crucial today for this reason. In the past 150 years, the charismatic movement has so persuasively twisted what the Scriptures teach on the Holy Spirit that now their false teaching has infiltrated Orthodox evangelical churches who are trying to remain anchored in the word. And here's just a quick personal story to illustrate what I'm talking about. Uh, When I was a new believer in college, you've heard me mention before that I came to know Christ my freshman year at the University of Iowa. Shortly after that, a Christian friend of mine handed me a sermon cassette tape. And for those of you younger people that don't know what that is, see me later. Just Google it, and you'll see pictures. Um, handed me a sermon cassette tape, and he said, Dude, this is amazing. you got to listen to this. Take it, man, here. And so I took the cassette tape back to my dorm room, and I listened to it, because I was just eager and hungry as a new believer to devour the Word of God and and was just eating up all sorts of preaching and teaching. So I listened to this tape, this message. It was a charismatic minister who told some far-out stories about the Holy Spirit, leading him and using him and providing for him and some just hard-to-believe witnessing opportunities that he had in a series of events that took place in one day of his life recently. And I don't know whether the stories are true or not, and I'm not questioning that. Well, sort of I am, but um, I'm not saying the Lord can't do what this guy was talking about. But I do have an issue with his single application at the close of the message. It was false. He told his listeners to ask God in prayer for more Holy Spirit in their lives so they too could have the same experiences that he had. And so, not knowing any better as a young believer and having heard the stories that he told, I'm thinking, man, I want that too. I, I want to I have just like, Amazing witnessing opportunities with strangers that whose car breaks down on the side of the road And I bump into them and they come to Christ and then come to church with me and so on and so forth and become my best friend And I want I want this and I want that so I got down on my knees In my dorm room next to my bed and I pleaded with the Lord to give me more Holy Spirit Do you know why God never answered that prayer? Because it was false teaching. I wish I had known that then, but I'm glad that I know it now. And so here's the second point on your outline. And, and, and this is what I think the main thrust of what Paul is trying to get across here in Ephesians 5, 18 to 21. And it is this. God expects his children to walk in the Spirit. God expects his children to walk in the Spirit. Now, I've worded this point in this way, instead of saying to be filled with the Spirit, because what Paul is saying in verses 18 21 connects back to what we learned last week in verses 1 to 17. You might remember from last week's message, or if you missed it, you can catch it online. I would encourage you to listen to it. Uh, That's where the the points of the message were, uh, the Lord expects us to be imitators of him by walking in love, walking in the light, and walking in wisdom. Well, Paul kind of continues that thought here in 18 to 21 with walking in the Spirit, being being one with the Spirit. In verse 18, we'll see Paul continue to use the put-off and the put-on negative, positive pattern that he established or introduced back in chapter 4, verse 22. You might remember that from a few weeks ago where Paul told us to uh, walk in holiness by putting off sinful behaviors from our previous life and to put on and replace them with the holy behaviors, with our new life. Well, Paul continues that throughout the end of chapter 4 and then on up through chapter 5, and he does it again here in verse 18. And so here's letter A on your outline. I want to talk about for a couple minutes the contrast to drunkenness. The contrast to drunkenness. Paul says, do not get drunk with wine. The apostle accentuates being filled with the spirit by contrasting it with the negative behavior of drunkenness. Just as he contrasted darkness and light back in verse 8, earlier in this chapter. Do, do, not, do not walk in darkness as you used to. Walk in the light now. Well, do not be drunk as you used to get drunk. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Drunkenness was an offensive behavior that even the Jews uh, hated and despised, and they knew was wrong. And you've heard me talk before that this church in Ephesus was filled with both Jewish new believers in Christ and Gentile new believers in Christ. And that caused some friction. And that's why Paul, back in, uh, I think it's chapter 3, talked about how Christ had reconciled these two groups of people. Now, for a Gentile, though, who had gotten saved, their background, their life before Christ was often filled, no pun intended, with alcohol. Alcohol was something that new Gentile believers struggled with in their previous life. In fact, commentator Craig Keener mentions that many Gentiles in the ancient Greek world believed intoxication was a way to be possessed by the Greek god of wine, a god they called Dionysus. Keener writes, quote, Dionysus's Most active worshipers yielded control of themselves to him and performed sexual acts or acts full of sexual symbolism. End quote. So verse 18 is essentially about control. It's about control. When someone drinks too much alcohol, They are giving up control of themselves to the alcohol. And Paul says this is a problem because it leads to, you look back at your text again, look at your Bible, debauchery. Well, that's a big word, and most of us aren't using that in our text messages to friends and posting about debauchery on Facebook. So let me me unpack what that means. Some translations use the word dissipation here. Um, The word that Paul uses for debauchery in the original text describes a life of reckless abandon or a careless waste of resources. The New Living Translation renders it don't be drunk with wine because it will ruin your life. that's That's a good way to put it. Debauchery is a It's a life of sin and wasting, just wasting what God has given to you because you're letting alcohol control yourself. Now, although the scriptures do not forbid the consumption consumption of alcohol for uh, believers, there are plenty of stern warnings to be careful when doing so. Drunkenness is a sin that God takes seriously, and it has no place in the Christian life. Now, instead of being drunk with wine, the negative behavior, Paul then says in the second half of verse 18, do the positive. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so letter B is this, the charge to be filled. Letter A was the contrast to drunkenness. Letter B, the charge to be filled. In this phrase, Paul uses what New Testament scholars call the present tense imperative mood passive voice of the Greek word to make full. Now, don't you know what that means? That's okay. I'll explain it. Here's why I mention this. It's not to impress you or to intimidate you. There's a reason. The present tense in the Greek text of the word, make full, means it's supposed to be an ongoing action that repeats and repeats and repeats with no end. The imperative mood means it's a command, it's not optional for us. And the passive voice means we can't do it ourselves. Now you might be wondering, well, if we can't do it ourselves, then why are we commanded to do it? That's kind of unfair of God to do that, right? That's a fair question. It's a great question. I'm glad you asked. The Greek text is saying, we have to let someone else do this to us. Well, well, who? The Holy Spirit. Here's, Here's what Paul is literally saying. Here's another way that you could... Render this. Keep on letting the Spirit fill you. Keep on letting the Spirit fill you. Now, there's, there's some debate amongst commentators as to who the agent is and what the content is in the second half of verse 18 here. And this is important because it, we need to know exactly what Paul is saying so that we can do the command. Uh, in other words... What commentators have debated on and they don't all agree on is who is pouring, meaning who's the agent, as you see in the picture here on the screen behind me, who's who's the one holding the pitcher of water? And then the other question is what are we being filled with or what's the content? So what's in the pitcher of water being poured into our glass? What is it? So who's the agent and what's the content? Here's here's what what I think Paul is saying. The content, it can't be more Holy Spirit because he already indwells the believer and we can't lose him and we would already have all of him. So the content, the liquid, can't be the Holy Spirit. Here's, Here's what Paul is saying. The Spirit is the agent, the one doing the pouring and the content being poured is the fullness of God or the fullness of Christ. Uh, Let me show you uh, what I mean here. If you would, keep your finger in chapter 5 and turn back in your Bibles to Ephesians 3.19. Ephesians 3.19, you might remember, is Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church. And in Ephesians 3.19, he says uh, in its long, beautiful prayer, his desire, what he was praying and hoping for, among many things, is that they would be filled with the fullness of God. Next, look at chapter 4, verse 13. This is right after the spiritual gifts verses, where the apostle uh, says that one of the purposes of the gifts and using our gifts is that we would mature as believers and mature as a church. And so in verse Thirteen, Chapter 4, verse 13, he says, We should use our gifts to serve until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You see that word fullness there. So, okay, Carrie, you're still waxing the Milky Way. Can you bring it down to earth here for us? here is my best attempt at defining what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. If I could put it in a Twitter post, if I could just boil it down and condense it, and I worked really hard on this, and I may change it next week, but this is what I have today. So, to be filled with the Spirit is to continually surrender control of your life to the Spirit so He can make you mature in Christ. To be filled with the Spirit is to continually surrender control of your life to the Spirit, so he can make you mature in Christ. This takes into context what he said back in chapter three, verse 19, and then chapter four, verse 13. So you can see the thread that's being sort of sewn throughout the letter. Now, again, as as is the case with all theology, we can end up in ditches on either side of the road here. So I want to keep us out of the ditches and keep us on the center line. Being filled with the Spirit is a regular abiding in and yielding to Christ's lordship in your life. But it is not, it is not an event. It is not a euphoria It is not a mystical feeling or an experience of extreme emotionalism like the charismatic movement has tried to convince us of. They have tried to convince us it is that because they are trying to build a doctrine of the Holy Spirit almost entirely from narrative books in the Bible like the book of Acts. And that is horrible. It is horrible Bible study method, or the term we use in seminary is, it's a horrible hermeneutic. Hermeneutics is the science of Bible interpretation. The reason it's horrible is that narrative books in the Bible are meant to be descriptive, not prescriptive. They they describe events that are happening that are not necessarily supposed to happen all the time. Whereas epistles, like Ephesians, contain doctrinal teaching that tell us what is supposed to happen all the time. So Ephesians, for example, is prescriptive. Sound doctrine is established by starting with teaching books like the epistles and the gospels and then adding supporting texts from narrative books. You don't start with narrative books like Acts and go, oh, this Acts is how it's supposed to always be. That's why it's bad theology. So, if you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, you'll have to empty yourself first because the Spirit cannot fill something that's already full. Now, here's letter C the consequences of being filled. We talked about the contrast, we talked about the command. Or the charge, excuse me. Now, here's the consequences of being filled. What? How can you tell someone is filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, the apostle lists four things here in verses 19-21. They are not the only four things. There are more evidences of the Spirit-filled life in other portions in the New Testament. But verses 18 to 21 it's worth noting, is one long sentence in the Greek text. and some translations, maybe yours does this, reflect this, while others break up this long sentence into smaller ones. In verses 19 to 21, what we have are five participles. You might want to underline them in your Bible. In the ESV, those participles are addressing, singing, making, giving, and submitting. the first consequence of being filled. And and this is my attempt to boil it down and simplify it. It would be spiritual encouragement. Believers who are filled with the Holy Spirit provide spiritual encouragement for other believers. Where am I getting that from? Well, in verse 19, he says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. This is not... This is not saying to another believer, you know, I'm so thankful for you. Or, hey, that's a nice outfit you have on today. Or, you're so good at that. It's, it's so much more what Paul is talking about here. It's speaking to one another about the Lord and our walks with the Lord. Because we're so filled with the Spirit, like a, to think of a, a cup of water filled, that when we bump into each other, what comes out and just spills out of us is Jesus, his word, and songs we're singing to him throughout the week. So he's talking about the interchange between believers of mutually encouraging each other with scripture and worship music. The best example I saw of this was uh, in the church I attended when I was in college. And I, I just have to admit, being transparent with you, uh, as a new believer attending this church near my college campus, experiencing this made me think this is how it is in every church, and it unfortunately set me up for disappointment, and I've now seen, having walked with the Lord for 25 years and served in a handful of different churches, it unfortunately is not common in most churches. But it should be. It should be. Here's what I mean. In that church, when I attended in college as a new believer, we regularly, my friends and I in the college ministry, we regularly asked each other things like, hey man, what's the Lord teaching you this week? Oh, you know this one thing that's happened the other day? And then I turn on the radio and there's a sermon right on that topic. Totally convicted me. Dude, you got to hear this sermon. And it was like good teaching, not bad teaching like the previous sermon that I talked about on the cassette tape. So, or, or we would regularly say, what are you reading in the Word, bro? Or, or we'd talk to a sister in Christ, what are you reading in the Word? Oh, I'm doing this great study in, in the book of Exodus. And, and I'm learning about the holiness of God and how he led the people out of Egypt. And we, we, we encouraged each other and shared things with each other. We were learning and then that would cause, oh, that's great. I want to learn more about that too. I think I'm going to start reading Exodus. We, we exposed each other to new worship music by sharing songs that ministered to us. Hey, have you heard this new song by such and such an artist? It's so powerful. It's based on Psalm 46. You've got to hear it. I love it when music is taken straight from the scriptures and we would share songs with each other. And of course, none of that, I mean, that couldn't happen unless we all individually were saturating ourselves in the Word of God during the week and... Also, exposing ourselves to worship music throughout the week so that we could share something with another believer. Such exchanges weren't forced, but it was natural. It was natural because most of my friends in the church were walking with the Lord. In fact, our our pastor uh, would start off our college Sunday school class each week with the question, almost every week, what's God doing in your life? And he'd just sit there and listen and wait until somebody finally spoke up. And usually, you know, it took a while, a minute or two for the first person to share. And then it started momentum in the group. And we'd have anywhere from, from 10 to 30 students in the class, depending on what time of year it was, whether it was summer or during the school year. And people would start popping off and sharing for the first 10 to 15 minutes of class. Oh, I had this, op- I've been asking the Lord to use me to, you know, to be a witness in, in, you know, on my sports team, and holy cow, one of my teammates asked me where I go to church, and so I'm bringing them next week, and I have a chance to share the gospel with them. Or, you know, I've been praying for this situation, and, and I had a bill I didn't know how I was going to pay, and God came through and helped me pay my tuition this past week, and I had no idea how it was going to happen. And just every week, there'd be three, four people in the class that would just share things that the Lord was doing and what he was teaching them. And it was so encouraging to me to hear it. And I'm sure it was encouraging to my pastor as well. And it wasn't uncomfortable and it wasn't intimidating because he was asking. Nobody was afraid of giving the wrong answer or anything like that. We all were eager and growing in the Lord. We all were sharing what he was doing in our lives. We all could see what he was doing. It was wonderful. And it was so encouraging. So that's the kind of encouragement that Paul was talking about here. Next, in verse 19, he also references heartfelt worship. Heartfelt worship. Another sign that you are filled with the Spirit is that you sing and you make melody to the Lord with your heart. It doesn't mean it has to be in perfect key or anything like that. It just needs to be a joyful noise, as you've heard before. He's referring to not going through the motions of, I showed up, I took a seat, I was there on campus when Vanguard met, I moved my lips to the songs, checkmark church, now I'm out of here, God's pleased, I'm good, I'm going to go live my life. Not that. Not that. Jesus says in John 4, 23-24, that the Father is seeking true worshipers, he's looking for them. Where are they? Where, oh, there's some right there. Good. There's some right there. I want... I am pleased with that worship. He is evaluating our worship every Sunday. That's what John 4 teaches us. And Jesus said those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The word truth that he uses in John chapter 4 means both theologically accurate songs and being genuine and authentic. So believers who are filled with the Spirit will not only be physically present in the service, but spiritually present as well. Their minds aren't elsewhere. Their hearts aren't elsewhere and distracted. Because they've set aside, this time is my time to meet with the Lord. It is sacred time. It is precious time. I will get here early, I will stay here late, I will go to bed early Saturday night, I will do whatever it takes so that I can give the Lord my complete focused attention and sing from my heart. The Lord knows if our minds and hearts are elsewhere, but you can be certain, you can be certain, this is another good test of whether you're filled with the Spirit, It's when you choose to worship the Lord, even when it's the last thing on earth you want to do. Maybe because you're struggling. Maybe because you're disappointed in the Lord. He let you down. or You think he let you down. To overrule your emotions and to say, I'm going to sing anyway. Because God is still God. He's still who he says he is and will still do what he's promised he will do. Even though I don't feel it, don't believe it, and I'm disappointed. I sing anyway. That's another sign you're filled with the Spirit. Because the Spirit always wants to glorify the Father and the Son. And so, evidence of his presence in your heart is him moving you to glorify the Father and Son as well. Next, Paul talks about thankfulness, verse 20. Another consequence of being filled with the Spirit, thankfulness. Giving thanks always, regardless of circumstances. Believers who are filled with the Spirit know they can always find things to be thankful for in the gospel. That is a starting point. Then believers can also look back on times when God was faithful and did come through. This is a common thing in the Psalms, for example. When David wrote in the Psalms and he was discouraged and disappointed with the Lord, he would tell himself and he wrote it down in the Psalms. But I do remember, my heart will be encouraged by what you did in the past. In essence saying, you did it once before, I believe by faith you're going to do it again. You're going to come through for me. Believers start, though, in finding encouragement in the gospel when they're discouraged because no matter how difficult life can be for us here on earth, it doesn't change the fact that the Lord loves you, that he died for your sins, and that he wants to be with you for eternity. That doesn't change. And by the way, eternity is just a little bit longer than the time you'll be struggling down here on earth. That's called having an eternal perspective, the long view. This is a work of the Spirit, because all of us struggle to be thankful in our flesh. Next, the fourth consequence of being filled with the Spirit is mutual submission. Mutual submission. I'll unpack this a little bit more in a couple of weeks as we wade further into chapter 5 and the marriage text that comes up in the next uh, uh, paragraph. But uh, just briefly, for the sake of time, here's what he's talking about. Verse 21, submitting to one another. The Greek word that Paul uses here for submit is the Greek word hupotasso. Most of the time when this word is used in the scriptures, it describes subjecting yourself to an authority. The usage here in Ephesians 5.21 is a rare exception. And it's an exception in that the apostle is referring to -to peer-to-peer relationships within the church. In other words, relationships within the church where neither believer has authority over the other, Paul is saying we should show deference to one another. He talked about this when he wrote the Romans in Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. Promoting others instead of ourselves is a fruit of humility and a fruit of the Spirit. One way I've seen this done before, almost comically, and you probably experienced this too, is, is when two believers are walking up to, say, a restaurant or maybe they're coming in here to the to the school where we meet and walking up to a closed door and both of them open the door for each other and go, no, no, you go ahead. No, you go ahead. No, you go ahead. Oh, fine. Let's just go in together. You know, that, that's one example that came to mind of mutual submission, outdoing one another and showing honor. I, I want to honor you. No, I want to honor you. I want to honor you. <gasps> Stop honoring me. Okay, fine. Just go in already. Let me boil things down again um, simply, if I can. Uh, This is a fuzzy topic, what it means to be filled with the Spirit, and so I worked extra hard to try and be clear, clear, clear and simple. So let let me just say this, and you might wanna write this down as well. You know you are filled with the Holy Spirit when you are able to do things you naturally would not do you know you are filled with the Holy Spirit when you are able to do things you naturally would not do. This not only includes giving spiritual encouragement, heartfelt worship, thankfulness, and submitting, but also, for example, manifesting the fruits of the Spirit that we see in Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, Faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You are filled with the Spirit when you have self-control you've never had before. You are filled with the Spirit when you love people you wouldn't naturally like. You're filled with the Spirit when you begin to change habits that you've been stuck in for years. So, if you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, you have to empty yourself first. Because the Spirit cannot fill something that's already full of itself. Well, let's talk applications. There's only one today. I think there's one that Paul makes clear and you know, obviously it's the imperative to be filled with the Spirit, but I wanted to rephrase that to kind of capture what we've been talking about for the last few minutes. And so here it is. I think the one application we need to take away is this. Unconditionally surrender control to the Lord daily. Unconditionally surrender control to the Lord daily. That's what I think he's really driving at here. Instead of getting drunk with wine, And letting wine control you, alcohol, put that off, put on the positive, holy behavior of surrendering, unconditionally, control of your life to the Lord daily. Let Him control you. One of the many fruits of our inherited sin nature is our desire to be God, We want in our flesh to be God over our lives. We want to be in control. We want to call the shots. We want to be in charge. This is the sinful thinking that unbelievers are known for that keeps them separated from God. However, when an unbeliever repents of their sin and by faith trusts in Christ alone for for their salvation, the Lord offers, to use the military term, terms of surrender. Okay, you want eternal life? You want me to forgive your sins? Great. I sent my son to die for you on the cross because I love you. Salvation's free, but there's a cost to having a relationship with me. And that cost is your old life. Give up your old life and start a new life following me. That cost is surrendering control of your life To me, it's submitting to Christ's lordship. And because our sin nature still resides in our hearts, our flesh will continually try to take control of our lives back from the spirit. This is why surrender must be daily, if not hourly. Jesus is either Lord of all your life, or he is not your Lord at all. So, unconditionally surrender control to the Lord daily. Well, we all know that deep sea divers, when they enter the water, uh, they must have oxygen tanks strapped on their backs in order to survive. And this is because they are entering a world in which they do not belong. Water is not their natural habitat. Therefore, in order to survive in a foreign world of water, they take oxygen with them from this world down into that world. This connection to their world above water is the key to their survival because divers weren't meant to live in water. Well, in a similar fashion, when an individual becomes a Christ follower, they now live in a world where they don't belong. Our natural habitat is now another world. And in order to survive in this world, we have to stay connected to our life source from that world. The Holy Spirit enables believers to live and to breathe down here in a world that is not our own. However, if we keep our tanks filled with the Spirit we can avoid suffocating before we get back home. So fill your tanks daily by spending time in God's word and in prayer and surrendering control of your life to him. Because if you wanna be filled with the spirit, you'll have to empty yourself first. Would you join me as we close in prayer? We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.